Food shapes our bodies, but also the entire society around it, including cities. Those are the words of architect and scholar Carolyn Steele. In conversation with renowned chef Matt Orlando, they discuss the invisible infrastructure and food supply that we take for granted and why we need cities and nature to coexist. Program director at Danish Architecture Center, Anna Katrina Harders, moderates the talk. This talk is presented in collaboration with Copenhagen Architecture Festival. You're listening to a Heartland podcast. I can't see you, you're all black, <laughs> which is nice. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I didn't really know like, much about like, food as anything else, it's something you ate uh, until a while ago. Um, but then I started thinking about it, and I thought about some of my friends who finally got that house with the garden that so many people are longing for. It's not huge but the, there's enough space to grow, you know, a little carrots and peas. And we went there with the kids, and they could pick some of these peas out of these, I don't know what you call it, bushes. And, um, okay, now, I, I admit, uh, we're a very urban family, and my daughter, she was age four at the time, she asked me on the bike home, she says, Mom, why would you share just, like, a few peas when you can buy, like, a big bag at the supermarket? <laughs> And I realized two things. First, that my kids have absolutely no idea where food comes from. And two, that I too think that she's right. I mean, I would rather just buy things at the supermarket. Matt, is there something wrong with my view on food? Everything. No, <laughs> <laughs> this is a great start. <laughs> no. <laughs> Do we leave now? No. <laughs> No, I don't think there's anything wrong with your view on food based on the society that we live in. Uh, if you zoom out and look at it from a, uh, from a logistical and moral point of view, that's where you find the faults in it. I, I also experienced this very same um, situation, ironically, with peas as well. Um, we do a kids program in the garden at a mass, and um, we bring inner city kids into the garden, and we... Over a three-month period, we plant, we sow, we harvest, and we cook the food in the kitchen with their families. But the first time we did this, we also had a, a, a young boy. I was picking peas with him in the garden, and he, he asked me what they were. He didn't even know what they were. And uh, when I opened it up and he saw the little pea inside, he said to me, oh, yeah, those, those come from the freezer in a bag. That could have been my daughter. <laughs> so, but it is, I, I think it's, you're not wrong. I think society is wrong in, uh, in this so, situation. Matt, would it be correct to say that you're obsessed with like healthy, sustainable food? Uh, an idealist would be a word I would use. At least I can tell. <laughs> so I went to visit you at a mass, and we were sitting out in this nice garden. We're going to see a, p a photo of it later. Uh -huh. We're sitting in this nice garden, and you talk about all like everything we need to change. And then, then I asked, like, because you want food to be more sustainable, and I yeah. said, like, what, do your kids never ask for, like, Freiderslick, you know, candy on Fridays? And you're like, no, they want dates. And I feel like I've poisoned my kids ever <laughs> since I talked to you. That's precise brainwashing, I've yeah. there. <laughs> I guess. Thank you for that. Well, Carolyn, um, you're an architect, mm. and probably also obsessed with food. I remember when doing my PhD 10 years ago, um, a, a colleague of mine sent me an article that you wrote on, on food and the city, and I thought, what now? Is, food is like something I put in my mouth. It's like a product that I consume and an add-on to the city. Um, but I, I guess I was wrong. Yeah, I mean, basically, we live in a world shaped by food. You know, we are made of food. We wouldn't be here without it. But also, you know, food shapes our minds, our bodies, our economy, our politics, our cities, our landscape, our social relationships, everything. Um, but we've evolved, I mean, uh, there's so much to say about this, um, but, you know, we've evolved this society in which food exactly does sort of appear to just come as if by magic in a bag. You know, we don't think about it, we don't farm anymore. I mean, how many, how many farmers are there in this room, by the way? 
and I can't we, see. We can't so see you I'm anyway. imagining very few. Because <laughs> they're probably... <laughs> Yeah, no, but I mean, Crickets. you know, so there are very few farmers, and, and, and if there are any, they're very busy working, they're not sitting in festivals, so, um, <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, but, yeah, I, but, but we, but they're the most important people in society, because without them, we, we would starve to death, so there's something very, very weird about the way we've set society up, that we don't value food, we expect it to be cheap, we don't expect to have to think about it, just arise by magic, and it's actually making us sick, and it's, it's destroying the planet. So, I mean, food is this extraordinarily powerful portal through which to see everything that we're doing wrong, in a way, but also everything that we could be doing right. So, um, I was think, trying to think what... what we're going to dig into this. We're going to see a model that you made. Um, so the whole question of this conversation is uh, how can the city shape what we eat? I just want to, to, so people know what they can expect. Matt, what would you like to get out of this conversation? I, I would like to get an understanding of our, our free spaces in the city. I mean, a city, we, I mean, Copenhagen maybe is an, an anomaly in the world. Um, we, we have a lot of green space. I mean, there's a lot of cities with a lot of green space, but we have a lot of green space, like patches of green here and there. And I'm always being a chef and also in the last definitely five years going deep down the rabbit hole um, and understanding our, our food system and, and where food is actually coming from, how it's produced and all of that. Every time I see a green space, I can't help but think what could you we could grow so much food yeah. right there. Yeah. And a lot of these green spaces are, of course, we need them. Obviously, there's a big mental um, advantage to having green spaces when you live in a city. I mean, I lived in New York for a long time, and if Central Park didn't exist, most, a lot of people would go mentally crazy if they didn't have that space to go. So I do appreciate green spaces in that context. But there are a lot of green spaces that just exist next to a big industrial building that's just kind of grass or dirt and sitting there. And... I also, I, I just, I want to understand why those spaces aren't being used. Um, and you probably can answer that in some way, <laughs> well, in a way. Um, because I, I just think there's so much potential there, both in producing food, but maybe more importantly in actually educating people where food comes from. And Carolyn, you've been writing several books. Uh, one, several, two. <laughs> <laughs> so but you also, so you also write like essays and articles mm. and they're almost the length of a book. Mm. I can mm. tell mm. because I read some of it. <laughs> but one was called like Hungry City, how food shapes our cities. And you know, as I said, I, I guess we're trying to reverse that idea and say how the city can shape uh, food. But um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how, like more from a historical perspective, yeah. what is your, what did you want to say there? Um, yeah, I mean, basically, I call this the urban paradox. So, you know, basically, as humans, we have two key sets of needs. You know, we need each other, and it's lovely to be here with you all, you know, so we're sociable animals, and that's why we build cities, is to be with each other. But we also need nature you know, because we need sustenance. And how to square these two things is, if you like, the most ancient problem that city dwellers have faced. So even if you go back to the ep epic of Gilgamesh, which is the oldest story in the world, you know, which was set in the, the Mesopotamian city of Ur, um, Uruk, sorry, um, it's actually about how you square that relationship between the city and the natural world. And we've never solved this problem. And as, you know, we've started to industrialize and it's become easier to feed cities and there's so much to say about what it takes to feed a city, which, if you like, is the ultimate question of civilization. You know, because cities don't feed themselves. So where does the... And the, they can a little bit, and that's coming on to Matt's point. Uh, and indeed, historically, pre-industrial cities actually were very, very productive. You know, so lots of households kept pigs and chickens and we co-evolved with pigs and chickens because they're omnivores and therefore they can eat our food scraps. Um, but also, you know, there were sort of market gardens surrounding them, exactly as you say. And there was a kind of ecological loop from the city to the countryside and back again. And industrialization broke that link. 
So basically, when you got railways, you could transport food very far, very rapidly, and this made it possible to grow cities very big. And then the food started to come in from you know, hundreds or thousands of miles away. By the way, it's important to say it did in the ancient world too, but you had to be... So ancient Rome, for example, really pioneered the kind of the food mile model where the food's coming in from a long way away because it was powerful enough to do it, and it just used ships and slaves to get the food in from Egypt, for example. But now it's possible with the railways for food to just really go on this kind of great kind of global roundabout of moving around. As you know, there's things like the great chicken swap where British people don't like dark chicken, so they fly all the dark bits to Thailand where they only like the dark bits, and Thailand flies all its white. I mean, it's completely bonkers. Um, but... It really is bonkers. And this brings me to another point. So I'm talking about geography. I'm talking about the relationship between... Am I talking too fast, by the way? Or is it OK? It's fine. Okay, it's fine. It's fine, ten, but I'm going to stop you soon, Ten thirty in the morning at a festival. Soon, you know, you kind of, OK. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's just... <clears throat> sorry. But, so I'm just digesting your porridge. But, um, you know, so there's this kind of, as I call, a paradox of how you reconcile the city and the country and bring them together. But it's an old question. So utopianism which has existed, you know, the business of how do we live is really as old as, as consciousness, in a sense. And when people started living in cities, there's been this kind of city and country issue. How do we bring them together? Utopians tend to say the ideal way is to keep the city small, so you can just surround it with countryside. That's what I call the fried egg model of urbanity, you know, so the city is the yolk and the countryside is the white bit. And actually, there have been points in history, so, you know, Athens, for example... I don't know how long you want to go on for, but I mean, it's a big subject. Like another you know, 10 seconds. The Athenians, the group, were the first people to ask the question of how you feed a city. And they came up with this idea of oikonomia, which means household management. And the idea is that every citizen has a house in the city and a farm in the countryside, and the farm feeds the house. So that is household management, oikos nemein. And that gave us our word economics, by the way interestingly, and it's all about keeping the city small and feeding it from its hinterland. And this has been an ideal, so that go I'll just say it's, it's Thomas More's utopia tries to go back to this model, and so does the Garden City, if you've heard of this idea of Ebenezer Howard. And, and I think let's get back to that later, where we can talk about how we solve this issue. But then first, could you be more specific? What is the problem that we... What's the problem with the city today? Because I think it sounds rather smart that we're efficient, we live close, and we can get food brought into us. Like, is that a problem? Yeah, I mean, basically, um, food and agriculture are the most... I mean, agriculture is the most destructive human activity on the planet. It's actually destroying the planet. So, because we've decided to build society around the idea that there is such a thing as cheap food, which, if you think about it, there couldn't be, because food consists of living things that we kill so we can live. So, food is life. So, if you cheapen food, you're cheapening life. But we've done this. Why have we done this? because how to eat is our most ancient problem. And, you know, when industrialization, when we learned how to harness fossil fuels and to move stuff around rapidly, it was like we were solving this problem. We thought, ah, finally, you know, we can just turn the whole American Midwest into a grain field, we can feed the grain to cows, we can ship it to the East Coast with chilled, chilled chains, you know, on the railways. And we seemed to solve the problem. What we didn't see was that every one of those stages actually had an externality, so a cost that wasn't being allowed for. So, for example, you can't just turn grassland into annual cropland without the soil dying, which is what happens. That's the famous Dust Bowl, for example. Climate change, pollution, water depletion, diet-related disease. So we should just stop eating, I guess. Um, clearly, we can't do that. I mean, what we need to do, and I'm sure Matt's going to talk more about this, is we need to go back to eating more locally, seasonally, regionally, and eating actual food, real food. I mean, as Michael Pollan famously says, don't eat anything your grandmother wouldn't have recognised, for example. But, but actually, no, I mean, and it's really, it's very interesting, because we're now discovering, I mean, digestion and nutrition, they're really late developing, they're so important, but we're only now discovering about them, they're, they're incredibly sort of late to develop sort of sciences, and we're now discovering that, you know, it was never fat that was the problem, it was never sugar that was the problem, it's highly processed food that's the problem. And that's what industrialization basically produces. So, um, Matt, Matt just, so, so Carolyn says there's no such thing as cheap food. Uh, 
is food a product? Uh, can you consider food a product, or should we stop considering food an actual product well, we I, consume? I mean, I think we need to stop considering food as a commodity, mm. because that's what that's what devalues food. Mm. And I think you know, <clears throat> kind of to focus back at the a city and surrounding it and kind of feeding the city. If you if you go way back and you look at the I would say the the pinnacle of civilizations in ancient time, they have all crumbled mm. because of food as well. Mm, 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 mm. Um, I mean, if, if you look at the Roman Empire, they the Roman Empire crumbled because they depleted the soil yeah. all around them and couldn't grow enough food for the population of the city. Yeah. And so it's crazy that we can't even learn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we. I mean, there's so many things we haven't learned uh, mm. from the past, but. <laughs> I, <laughs> that's just one of them. Um, there, I mean, I, I think that food, first of all, we need to start talking about it in a different context um, because it has become a commodity. Mm. The, the, the way it gets sh- shipped around, uh, we are, I have a really good friend who I just had a conversation with who he's an he's a, he's a amazing photographer now, but before that he was a, he was a cocoa and coffee commodities trader. And he just, ripped the lid off of the the damage that just those two industries have done. Mm. And those are kind of maybe considered from a growing and producing standpoint low impact industries. If you if you're if you're commodity trading chickens, mm. I mean that is that chicken isn't it's not a life anymore. Mm. And which is so sad. Mm. And these this commodity trading has produced this broken food system in so many ways. So do you think people are aware of that? Like looking at the food scene in in Copenhagen, for instance, I mean, we've got a lot of new restaurants. We say that we eat less meat. And uh, I don't know if that's true. And and you actually have like vegetarian restaurants. Like, Do do you think we are kind of disconnected from from this understanding of the food system? Definitely. We're definitely disconnected. And, And again, you know, I'll look at it two points of view. Society is disconnected, and there's two reasons for this, in my opinion. And one is that a lot of society chooses to be disconnected. They don't want to feel the guilt of where their food comes from. And the other part is that big industry hides this from society, and they spend a lot of money hiding it from society Mm. because if what really came out was presented to society on a large scale, there'd be a big shift. Mm. Um, so it's, it's I, for me, I always, I always have this conversation with my wife about uh, food. And it always evolves around, we consume food three times a day or how many times? It's, it's one of the only things that we need to survive. Why aren't the most important conversations full stop, happening around food? Mm. Why are we worrying about uh, the stock market? Or why are we worrying about, uh, why are we worrying about uh, where, where we're going to buy our next car or the, the, the new Tesla that just came out? And, like, and why do you think it is like that? Because, because food has become so cheap that it's mm. something we don't even have to think about. It, it, it's become a commodity, so mm. it has less value. Mm-hmm. And these conversations around the, what food costs and the impact of, of creating food, and most importantly, what happens to food when you put it in your body. I mean, we, uh, that, that alone is a whole other conversation. We are learning about the microbiome now, yeah. and the knowledge that we have, I, I just read a really interesting analogy on this, the knowledge we have about our microbiome and our bodies at whole is equivalent to the knowledge that we had of surgery in the 1600s. Yeah. So there's so much data coming out right now that is available to us. Yeah. So I am poisoning my kids with candy. I, I even, like, <laughs> I, I have to admit, like, because I, I do know that maybe, you know, our, at least our meat production might not be the best. So I have this idea, you know, which if you get, like, a chicken filet thing, uh-huh. that it comes from, like, um, like a, a big nut that you can uh, <laughs> pick from the tree, so I don't have to think about it actually have been a chicken before. Yeah. Do, do you think we 
good at just ignoring facts because most of us know that this bacon industry is not the best. And yet, the line for the gasoline burger yesterday was the longest. Yeah. I mean, we're, we are a species of denial. Until, mm. until there's a problem put directly in front of our face and we have to deal with it, it doesn't exist. I mean, uh, climate change is a, perfect, uh, is a perfect example of that. I mean, it, in the future, and it's all, you can already see it's starting to happen, but if it's not directly you, directly affecting you as an individual, then it's not happening and it's someone else's problem. And, and that, that's, that's what we are as a species. Plus, we're still hunter-gatherers, and meat is a very high-value food, yeah, exactly. and we're programmed to want to eat it. And, and, and that's why, globally, there's a transition happening towards meat-eating, which is the exact opposite of what we need. Because yeah. as people move from the countryside to the city and they get richer, they eat more meat. Yeah. You know, so there's a real, real dilemma there. Yeah. But, I mean, what you say is so interesting about the microbiome, and it's exactly right, and that's what I was referring to, and I was saying that our knowledge of digestion and nutrition is it's really behind where it yeah. should be. But it's only, I mean, you know, all this kind of thing about learning about the universe and that we can just about see the Big Bang, blah, blah, blah. Exactly the same is happening in reverse in terms of being able to see into the microbial world. Yeah. So we, we can see very big and we can see very small for the first yeah. time. And it's revelatory. I mean, things like the relationship between the human microbiome and the, the rhizosphere, which is the, the region of the roots in the soil, which is why we need to grow organic, because actually all the nutrition we need to be healthy only happens if the soil is living, not dead, which is why vertical farming isn't the answer, for example, or only part of the answer. But then you, you, you talk about, like, actually we get more knowledge about what food does to us, what food does to the, the world, and, um, but... but as you said, like, we tend to ignore that knowledge. So we do. Is, do we need to focus on getting more knowledge, or where do we need to focus? I mean, I, I want to say there's a silver bullet for all this, but there, there's really not. It's up to the individual person. You know, everyone always asks me, you know, what can I do personally to make a difference? And this kind of goes back to, and that, the answer is the same as, what is the definition of sustainability? And you can Google the definition of sustainability. That's easy. But if you want to really make a difference, then you just need to be inherently, inherently more curious about what's going on around you and take a little time to become aware of what it means to be a human on planet Earth. And when you pour this glass of water that came from here, what actually happened to get that water mm. to, on this table mm -hmm. right here? Because there, it's, it's so easy just to get caught up in the daily grind of life. And I, and, and I would say, and the excuse is I don't have time is not an excuse because I probably work more than most people. And I am inherently curious about what's happening because it's, we are a human living on planet Earth and we affect planet Earth by being here. So how can we, the only way to understand how you can mitigate that effect is to actually understand the processes that are happening around you. So, so if uh, what happened to me over the past two weeks uh -huh. is that every time I do something guilty, food-wise, like a, an image of you appears um, in front of my eyes, and I think if that just happens to this group, <laughs> at least we've created some awareness in here. So I think now, Caroline, is a good time to... Um, because when we were talking, I said, like, Caroline, you're an architect. What's, like, the role of the city? I know mm. that there are architects working with, you know... Um, doing city design that can make us, uh, you know, do other choices, not eating McDonald's all the time. Mm, mm, mm. Um, but then you said, yeah, the city is just a part. So should we s look at your model now, I guess? Okay, I mean, yeah. sure. I mean, it's coming you know, up. I, I think um, I'd like to sort of pick up on what Matt was just talking about. I mean, oh, your question that you asked about what, what can we do, what should we do? Mm -hmm. Value food, mm -hmm. value it. It's not cheap. It's the most important, precious thing in our world. And it is the direct link between us and the natural world and between us and one another. And my definition of a good society is one in which everybody eats well. And then, of course, you have to say, OK, what is eating well? And that's a really big conversation. But, I mean, the, the model that we might have a little look at just now is... It's um, still a very... 
Black well, I think it's just waking up, like, <laughs> just waking up yeah. like we are. I mean, but I mean, it's, it's, it's basically, I can just talk about it anyway. It's, it's, it's looking at that bowl of soup or porridge in front of you and saying, the universe is in this bowl of soup, because it is. And that's the drawing that might or might not come up. <laughs> so you'll have to, if I just talk and then it does come up, you have to tell me whether I described it well enough. Um, so the reason is, exactly as again, uh, Matt and that said. And that was the photo, and okay, we did the model first. Matt's that's photo. Right. That's very but it's really pretty, photo. though. Yeah. Um, so basically, you know, as Matt said, you know, when you look at the water, you have to say, okay, where did that water come from? How was it transported? Who traded it? You know, did it do damage? Did it pay people okay? Has it polluted anything? There's so many questions. The same with the bowl of soup. So, you know, say it's a leek and, leek and potato soup. Okay, leek and potato, were they grown organically? Were they not grown organically? Did they enhance the landscape so it looks beautiful like this? Or did it kind of destroy a soil because it was chucked down chemicals and pesticides? You know, were insects killed? Were birds killed? Or was it sustaining a sort of a livable landscape? You know, how was it traded? Were the farmers paid okay? You know, how was it transported? Did it go by road or rail or air? You know, did, what was the effect of that? When it arrived, you know, did it sort of animate a the space in the city to come back to your city question. Did it sort of get traded, bought and sold in a market? You know, were, did it animate public space or did it happen behind the scenes? Did somebody make an, an obscene profit or did people trade fairly? You know, and then where was it cooked? Did people sort of get fun out of cooking it? You know, was it an act of love or was it an act of near slavery fear. because or fear or, you know, whatever? And, and it goes on, and then did you eat the soup on your own, or did you eat it with your friends, or your, did you cook it for your children, or, you know, I mean, there's just so many questions. And then where is the waste going to go? Is it going to go into a compost heap? Is it going to go into the sea? You know, is it, is it going to pollute something, or is it going to be part of a sort of sustainable, you know, cycle? And, and, and it goes out to the universe because we live on a rotating planet, kind of spinning through space, and that gives us seasons, and that gives us day and night. And everything that we eat, which, by the way, comes from the plant world, you know, because plants have this magical property of being able to create sugar from sunlight, so it's a bit like what the Finnish guy's doing with protein, but, you know, plants have been doing it for billions of years. And um, lucky us, because then we get to eat the plants. So, you know, seasonality matters, the sort of the, the fitness of the natural world to self-perpetuate matters, and the degree to which we can fit ourselves into that system matters. So the big idea in the drawing still hasn't shown up is basically if you sit at your soup or porridge or whatever it is, that food in there is the world. It came from a landscape and it somehow made it to your plate and it changed everything along the way. It changed people's lives, it changed landscapes, it affected climate and so on, biodiversity. Um, so, you know, that is incredibly powerful. You, you actually are in control of what you eat, amazingly. I mean, less so when you live in what we call Tesco town, when basically, <laughs> you know, I mean, we have a very highly consolidated food industry in the UK, and I think you do here in Denmark as well. So basically, you know, one or two supermarket chains tend to dominate the food system. So there's the illusion of choice, but actually you're eating basically the, the thing coming out of the same system. Um, but you can step outside it, luckily. You know, you can still find out where your local growers are, your local farmers, and so on. But you are in control of what you eat. Oh, there, there you go. Voila. Great. So, but you just explain. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Wrap it up the hat moment. Exactly. So it's just the bowl of food. You know, you're sitting around it, sharing and communication. So, you know, this is how we learn to be civilized beings. This is how we learn to be socialized, is through the act of eating really early on. Somebody cooked for you. Did they love, the, love you? They're nurturing you, care for you? Is it a parent? You know, do, are you grateful for what they're doing? So that creates a space of the home. The food of, of most of us is not grown at home. Some of us grow a little bit, but it usually comes from a market. That might be a supermarket, but a place of trade that sits in the city. Where do, so you get, you know, exchange, trust, economy, going from the home to the market. But of course, the market itself is a space of, you know, exchange uh, and the space of the economy, and it sits in the city. Uh, and the city sits in the countryside, and I talked about that earlier, about that being a sort of dynamic, sort of ecological, ongoing system. But of course, the countryside sits 
inside nature. And of course, these are concentric circles, so it, there are no boundaries. It all sits in itself. It's a, it's a huge, complex system. And then at the edge, as I say, we're in a planet spinning through space, so we have seasons and so on. But the point is that, as I say, that suit that's going to go through you and actually become you, because by the age of 25, you've got none of the atoms left that you were born with. They're all made of upper stuff you've eaten. Um, so we are nature. We are part of the world. That's what food teaches you. And it goes out in sort of, as it were, concentric circles right out to the planet and beyond. Um, and that is your power as a consumer of food. You can actually... And a maker of food. It's very important to say. Um, and I call this place Sitopia. Um, and that's from the Greek word sitos, S-I-T-O-S, and topos for place. And it's basically because food shapes everything in our lives. And, and then we can use food as a lens to understand the world, to see the world, to see what's connected, what's valuable, and to change it. So, Sitopia is a kind of food-based practical alternative to Utopia, is the idea. So, we're sitting here at the future stage, so I guess, at least, I'm very interested in how we can change it. And, and now we went from the bowl of soup and all the way to the universe, which is quite a distance. Uh, not that far, actually. Not that far, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, We're in but, the universe, but that's but the point. Do, do I hear you correctly when you say, well, you can actually, as a person, change your habits, and you can, mm. well, change the universe mm. in the end. Mm. Is, is that what you're relying on? No, totally not. We right. need our, <laughs> no, 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 I mean, we need our politicians. I mean, this is a big thing. This is another reason why I'm so interested in history. Before the Industrial Era, the most important thing that every politician worried about all the time was food, how to feed people. This is why, when the food industry came along, the first thing that all the politicians did was go, oh, thank goodness I don't have to worry about that anymore. And they just let, let go of the strings and, the, and then let the industry do what we know the industry has done, which is denude the world, destroy nature in the name of profit, which is what they're still doing. And the politicians now are in a kind of semi-impossible position because they, they love the fact that food is cheap because that gets votes. Of course, there's a big crisis coming now with the war in Ukraine, which we can talk about, if you like, because uh, it's huge. But um, they're terrified of admitting they do not control the food system. They're, they're, they have no power. And actually, the food industry is paying government to keep things as they are. So there's a so-called revolving door. So really, I think we have to act as citizens. We have to demand a different food system with our votes, you know, and actually there's very few political parties who take food seriously. In fact, if I had my dream, if I was 30 years younger and had infinite energy and was prepared to lie all the time, I might, <laughs> I might go into politics. Sorry, that appears to be how you get ahead in politics. <laughs> Certainly in my country, sorry. Uh, but we need food at the heart of politics. We need it at the heart of our thinking. You know, and that's really, that's really my vision, is that, and, and as Matt said earlier on, mm. we need to put it at the heart, because there is nothing more important. So it's weird and crazy that it's over there somewhere while we get on with whatever. But politicians just, have also, you know, this has been put in front of their face a bit more directly in the last maybe 20 years, but they've used subsidies to defer yeah. the responsibility that yeah. they have. Totally. So like, okay, now we're, okay, let's just give them some money and they'll just keep going as Yeah, 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 yeah. They're desperate to Which keep the status quo. I yeah. mean, you know, and I mean, my government, my horrible, horrible government, I just have to say. <laughs> um, but anyway, <laughs> you know, so we've left Europe. How brilliant idea that is, you know, to go global, you know, which basically <laughs> means begging Alaska to do a trade deal with us. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and they're destroying farming in the UK because they have this mentality that you can always get it in from somewhere. So because we're a maritime nation, or I like to say pirate nation, you know, we, we've got this mentality that you can just send the ships out and import it. And it's a completely broken model because, as, again, the war in Ukraine demonstrates, actually the global system is extremely fragile. And this idea of just shipping grain thousands of miles and not bothering to make it yourself is really vulnerable. And, and, you know, I think we saw it under, you know, lockdown as well. You know, the supermarket shelves emptied, and then they filled up again a bit later, you know, and it's, ooh, what was that? Um, but that's just a sign that actually this idea that it's all just going to run like this is, is, is not right, and we have to start growing more locally, seasonally, uh, regionally again. Are these crises that we've seen coming from Ukraine, Corona, and all mm. these... 
Are they actually creating sort of a window of opportunity for yeah. changing? Mm -hmm. I yeah. think so. I, yeah. I mean, you know, I really, I mean, you know, Winston Churchill, I mean, everyone quotes Winston Churchill, he never said half the things they say he said. Yeah. He actually did say, um, you know, nev never waste a good crisis. Um, and, you know, and I really, really hope... You can that get that as a poster afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I really, really hope people... I mean, Matt and I were talking about this backstage. You know, I think we've reached a point now where pretending it's all OK is just not an option anymore. And we, we both yeah. have completely felt it. I mean, I've been banging on about this food stuff for over 20 years now. And when I started, everyone was kind of going, why do you, you're an architect and you talk about food? You know, what's that about? You know, what's food got to do with cities? Even people used to say to me as if cities don't eat and aren't full of people who get hungry. Um, you know, now that's totally different. And people are pretty much going, what are the answers? What are the answers? And of yeah. course, again, as we were saying backstage, it's not like there's a silver bullet. It's not like there's one answer. Oh, well, apart from, by the way, value food, which is just a sort of a general, hey, you know, actually, can we turn this thing upside down? So we've created a society where a good life is predicated on this non-existent illusion called cheap food. And all the big problems we're facing, and I really think it goes from climate change and environmental destruction and mass extinction through to political unrest, is because we've created this world that pretends food doesn't matter. And food is where all the love is, where all the meaning is, where all the kind of the sense of being in places, the sense of being in time is. And I think it represents all the things we need to go back to in order to lead good lives in the 21st century that are not predicated on just endless consumption, which is c consumption of a sort of empty kind. So I need a new handbag. Ugh, you know, I desperately need a new handbag because my life is meaningless. You know, if you... I mean, going right... You know, I mean, that's what it is. That's what capitalism is. It's basically buying new handbags to compensate yourself for the fact that you have a horrible job that you hate. Um, that's literally what capitalism is. I don't get it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So, um, so we definitely need to get back to that rewriting the story of food and consumption and capitalism and getting a new government and all those kind of things. Um, but Matt, so, so I was, um, after uh, we met, I was um, going to my friend's summer house. I rented a car. It was like a huge one, you know. Yes, of course. <laughs> and I was, and, and it was like these. I was, I was driving through Northern Zealand, and it was these yellow fields, and I looked like a car commercial, some kind, with my kids behaving somewhat alright because I gave them candy, and <laughs> and then uh, I realized, oh, this is like Danish nature. Well, it's agriculture, and then I realized, well, it's definitely not wild nature. I would not know what Danish nature looks like. Yeah. So maybe take us, and I, and I think we should go see your photo now. You already saw it, but um, so you know what it's, uh -huh. it looks like. What is your intention with a mass, like sort of getting us back to nature, I guess? Yeah, so we, when we took over a mass, uh, there was a big field out in front, and I had a really good lawyer negotiating the lease, so he got us a bunch of land in front of it as well. Uh, and we, were, we sat there, and, and Jackie, who has... Um, been there since day one, and, and we built the garden together. She, she takes care of it. Um, we talked about where it was, and, and nine years ago, out in Refsalun, there, it was very, that field was very wild. It was just, there was, there was a few trees, but loads of wild grasses growing. And it's quite central in Copenhagen for those yeah, who doesn't know. Exactly. And so we were, we, we talked about the garden, we're like, you know what, this garden can't be this beautifully manicured garden. Of course, we could produce a lot more food for the restaurant if we did that, but it would really take away from the message we were trying to convey with the garden. Because, of course, the garden is there for the guests to enjoy, and it's beautiful to sit in. And, but most importantly, it's, it's, there's an underlying message behind it, and we get so much from the garden. But we do it in a way where we don't manipulate nature. If you, if you look at it, there is probably more fennel than any one restaurant or three restaurants can actually handle because we have let the garden pollinate itself in numerous ways, in so many ways. And now I think we're about maybe 80% or no, I'd say 90% of in the garden is, is perennial. It's nine years getting there, but we definitely have more of a lot of plants than we need, but that's also because we just kind of let it happen. 
and not kind of pull stuff out. And, and even so, we have, a, we have a polytunnel that's about 15 meters long. And in the polytunnel, there is basically two things growing because they have been the strongest ones growing and we just let them grow. Um, and it, it's also, so for us, it's become a way to say, listen, you can grow food with, and food will grow itself if you just let it happen mm -hmm. and not manipulate it. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that this is the way that's going to that's gonna solve the, our crisis of producing food, but it, it, it's a glimpse for people who come there to say, listen, nature is actually amazing, and nature can produce food if we let it produce food. So what is your prime uh, purpose here? Is it to actually produce food to make it more sustainable, or is it to create this awareness? I think we can, we can never create enough food in that space that can even just supply our restaurant with enough. Mm. So it is, I think, for us, it's about creating awareness. And I, I, think that's kind of, I think that's kind of what I was getting at with these green spaces in the city is that, you know, we'll never be able to create enough food in, the, in these green spaces to feed the cities, but we will create awareness which can change people's mindsets. And I think the most important part of this story, and, it, and it's for every kind of big movement that's happening in this direction, is that it's, it's, it's not always about, at this moment in time, about the physical action of what we're doing. It's about the mental capacity to change what we have been doing. And because unless we change that, we're not going to be able to do what we need to do. And so we need to start, uh, uh, you made a great analogy in the back about creating these lifeboats mm -hmm. um, to show people that this is possible mm. and creating a foundation because, you know, change is happening now. But the, the really big change, it, it's not going to come in our generation mm. or anyone sitting in this tent. It's coming, it's coming but it's going to be my one-year-old son. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's about also the responsibility that we have as citizens on this planet um, and most importantly as parents that this, this is, these kids are the future. And how do you... How do you nurture that along the way? Uh, Just to go on about the lifeboat thing for a minute, they need to be sexy lifeboats. Super sexy and delicious. <laughs> sexy lifeboats. So basically, we're on the Titanic. The iceberg's there. We can see it coming. We're going to hit. The captain's not kind of going to... He's a little hungover. But, we, but if we build lifeboats that are really, really exciting and wonderful and fun and have even better champagne on them... <laughs> we might just get off the ship early and get into the lifeboat, you yeah. know, and if the Titanic hits with only the p captain on board, so be it. So my thing about food is that food is about pleasure. You know, I mean, this is the, I mean, Epicurus is probably one of the most misunderstood philosophers in history because he's understood to mean kind of, you know, un un liking fine dining, Epicureanism and so on is all about, you know, being a bit fussy about only eating the best stuff. Actually, what he's saying is... We are programmed to get pleasure out of eating, so why not just exploit that and, and enjoy it? And so if we're going to sort of live differently, the only way we're going to give up the handbags, you know, which I, personally I don't understand the handbag thing anyway, but I mean, the, the handbag people are going to give them up, is if we show them something that's going to give them even more pleasure and, and make them think, oh, handbags, schmanbags, you know. And actually, we can do that through food, you know, by creating spaces like your, oh, you, your other spaces, here, your beautiful spaces, but, but, getting but people Carolyn, engaged. Uh, right now, like, there's a McDonald's in every corner in uh, every major mm. city, and, and, and so many people, they prefer McDonald's. They prefer the, these, you know, easy fast food. You can get your food delivered. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 they go there. Yeah. And, well, a, and going to MS it, is that we, we were discussing it's got meat in it, so we were discussing that. that. You know, yeah. we were programmed to eat, yes. want to eat meat, yes. so that is an issue. But second, that's what they've grown up with. They've grown, they were taken there as a kid by their parents as a special treat. Mm -hmm. And by the way, Ronald McDonald, he's one of the spookiest people in history, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the, the cousin of the it clown. And exactly, exactly. I mean, I'd run a mile, frankly, but anyway, I have a clown thing. But um, no, I mean, uh, Ray Kroc, who, who basically, he, took, he met the McDonald's, who were 
couple of Scottish guys frying burgers on the side of a road somewhere in kind of, you know, Western America. Um, and he saw, had a vision. He bought the franchise off them. And he, he, he sold the franchise, you know, around America and obviously now globally. And how he decided where to put the restaurants was he, he was one of the very, very early people to use GPS. So he actually looked at where people were living, and he looked for family areas. And his, his motto was, go for the kids. So market to the kids, Ronald McDonald, presents, you know, make it a family place to go out, because pester power would mean the parents would go, and then everyone gets addicted. So we, we, we eat this stuff because we've been conditioned, we've basically been brainwashed, I think you used that term earlier, into in wanting to, thinking we want to eat it. And by the way, I mean, the other scary thing, going back to your one-year-old, Matt, is that by about the age of three, our, our food tastes are pretty much in place. So if all you've eaten is kind of, you know, chips and ready meals as a child, it's going to be much, much harder in later life to sort of learn to love your carrots. So it's about program. It's about the way we've set up the whole of society is, is why people... I mean, I couldn't believe it. I mean, as you say, at the end of lockdown, I was thinking, oh, great, everyone's buying from local producers because they practice... <laughs> no, they went back to McDonald's. And then day one after <laughs> lockdown, there were queues eight miles long in cars to get to McDonald's. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a problem. Yeah. I totally acknowledge the problem. But but it, we, and then yeah. we, are, we are slowly uh, reaching to the end. Uh -huh. But, Matt, could you be more McDonald's-like? I mean, uh, could you... <laughs> and I'm thinking with your nice, sustainable, healthy food, but maybe learn some tricks, because, I mean, guess who's going to amass so would be... Maybe not McDonald's fans. So this, this is so this is what we're up against. Okay, McDonald's only exists because of they work with farmers that are subsidized, so they can sell their products very cheap to McDonald's. If you were mm. to unsubsidize all the farmers that produce solely for McDonald's, whether mm. it's lettuce, uh, grains to make the buns, all this, a twenty-five Krona or a two-pound little burger would cost six pounds or 75 or 100 krona. Yeah. And you wouldn't buy that shitty little burger for 100 krona. So mm. that, that's, what you ha that's the real value of food. And we have been diverted from that value from, via subsidies. Yeah. And so that's what we're up against in trying to con convince people the, I mean, people shop with their wallets. Mm. And you, if you put something that is certified organic, very clean label, next to something that is not that and produced by demons below us, um, <laughs> and one is only maybe one-third the price of the other one, the majority of the people are going to go for the cheaper one. Mm just from a price standpoint. They yeah. won't even, the majority of them won't even turn the label over yeah. and actually see what's in it. So it, it, that's the kind of challenge we're up against. So instead of, you know, we, we also have to understand this challenge and we have to kind of feed into it as well and come up with solutions that are, you know, you, know, you can say whatever you want about Bill Gates, but he has this one phrase called the green premium. And that is something we need to get past mm -hmm. in producing these things that are supposed to replace these things. Mm -hmm. We need to figure out a way to produce them at a lower cost, and that's going to be by being able to scale them. Yeah. And, and then just be cautious along the way that we don't get sucked back into the, yeah, the yeah. food system. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I think that's a, a good uh, ending, and I just want you to maybe give some thoughts to what does the city look like when we've scaled this idea and sort of like what are we looking into uh, when we have a more sustainable healthy food system carolyn you as an architect yeah i mean it looks like the pre-industrial you can't make me go after her you can just point at your picture and then. I mean, you, know, my you only have 30 seconds my vision is 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 okay i i hear you is, is um to internalize the true cost of food but then you also have to have tax reform by the way so it's a complete systemic change of society Will we see McDonald's uh, then? No, you definitely corner? won't. Um, no, I'm going to ban that when I become sort of, you know, World King and Bill <laughs> Boris Johnson, which I look forward to. But um, no, it, it, the, the city in my head is weirdly like the pre-industrial city with tech. 
So basically, as I said earlier, pre-industrial cities were incredibly productive. Anywhere people could grow food, they grew it. And mm. all the waste was recycled. Yeah. So that is the vision, weirdly. It is kind of back to the future, because, of course, I'm not saying let's go back to being medieval peasants. We, can ha we have the tech as we well. Have we have all the good ideas. Um, they used to have to live within their ecological envelope, and we can go back there. But also, it's about putting food at the center, and it's about pleasure, and it's about love. Very, very important to say. Thank you, Carolyn, and now it is your turn, Matt, but could you maybe say, for a person like me, um, I mean, you're, you're creating awareness for me, uh -huh. but um, am I going to get like healthy, sustainable fast food in, I, in the future city? I, I don't think it will be in the same form as it is now, or, or delivered in, that, in, in the same way. I think that people will start to, I think that people will start to or hopefully start to grow more of their own food. I mean, I have a balcony in my apartment, and we grow stuff on the balcony. Of course, it can't sustain us, but it makes my daughter aware and stuff. Um, one thing that we need to work on is the, the logistics, um, but most importantly, we need to work on educating people and actually making people aware of, aware of food and the value of food, because it's, it's hard to imagine a future like you're describing without society actually being a part of it and mm. understanding what that is. And you know, I'll just end on saying, you know, we, we talk a lot about the silver bullet mm -mm. That, doesn't what is, that doesn't exist. Mm. But I'd, I'd have to argue that, say, it, it does exist in a form. And it exists in the form of 4.3 billion silver bullets. Mm. Because it is the individual mm. that is going to push the envelope. And, and you, you can't use the excuse anymore of saying, Oh, I'm just one person. I, what I do doesn't yeah. make a difference. Yeah. So uh, thank you for that. I'm going back to my balcony, which is going for a trial and error method. Something survives, something doesn't. <laughs> I'll give you some compost from a mass if you come out. I'm very happy, Matt. <laughs> if you could help me. Thank you for uh, giving us a glimpse of the future when it comes to food in cities. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you, Matt. And thank you to the audience out there. You have been listening to a Heartland podcast. The talk was recorded live at Heartland Festival 2022 and is presented in collaboration with Copenhagen Architecture Festival. We hope that the talk has provided insights and perspective and that you're inspired to check out our other podcasts. They can be found on our website or where you usually listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.